0: Today on Students Over Systems, we're celebrating education freedom at the state and national level. John Schilling joins us to discuss federal school choice programs and proposals. Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, we're focusing on federal school choice options, and we're going to take a few minutes to talk about teachers' unions once again. For this important conversation, we're joined by John Schilling. John is the founder of 2020 Strategies, senior advisor to Invest in Education Coalition, and the former president of the American Federation for Children. During his 15 years of leadership at the American Federation for Children, he helped AFC and its affiliates become the most effective education reform group in the country. Before that, he served four years as associate superintendent and chief of policy at the Arizona Department of Education and held various positions for members of Congress. John, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you.
0: All right, so we're going to start talking about the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. We talk a lot about education savings accounts here at Student Over Systems or ESAs, but I'd like to rewind the clock a bit and talk about scholarship or voucher programs, including ones that were available um, in the early days of the school choice movement. So in addition to managing AFC, you led the local coalition supporting the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. You helped secure multiple program reauthorizations and many years of annual funding. Um, Talk to us about what the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program does and who it serves.
1: Yeah, So the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program is the only federally funded voucher program in the country. It's now in its 18th year. Uh, It is among the most studied federal education programs ever. Uh, It is a program that has uh, a, a demonstrable and incredible record of success over these 18 years. Uh, It is a program that serves uh, low-income students uh, in Washington, D.C. These are families with an average income of about $22,000 a year. Uh, It is overwhelmingly a program that serves minority children, African-Americans, and Latino kids. Um, It has just been a lifesaver for low-income kids in District of Columbia. Sadly, uh, I am fighting the same battle that I have been fighting for the last 18 years in in this program, where uh, we are still struggling to get funding for the program. Uh, it's remarkable after this incredible record of success.
0: Right. Many of us watch the incredible movie, Miss Virginia, which tells the story of Virginia Walden Ford and uh, the fight that she led and was very much a part of in the early days to create the program. And it has a happy ending. Ta-da, the program's been created. We all live happily ever after. And so what you're saying is that 18 years later, we don't have a happy ending yet for, for the program. Um, tell us why. Who are the opponents?
1: Well, the reason we don't have a happy ending for the program is because we still have, um, shall we say, institutional resistance uh, to voucher programs, uh, notably from the teachers unions. As you know, the teachers unions uh, are the largest uh, donors to the Democratic Party, and it makes it very difficult for Democrats to really want to step out and support this program. As a result, what we end up having to do is, depending on who is in control of which chamber, uh, you know, we have to work for the chamber that, frankly, is in Republican control in order to secure funding for the program. Uh, and this year, we're in this sort of interesting space because the House has a very, you know, thin majority, and and the Democrats are in control of the Senate. And so after after a few years of this. This being a, quote, Senate program, because Republicans were in a stronger position over in the Senate, it is now reverted to once again being a House program. Uh, so we have been working with our friends in the House of Representatives to try to ensure full funding for this program, which is very, very critical. The program has been flat funded for the last several years. Uh, And as a result, uh, well, that in combination with the um, high inflation we've experienced over the last few years, um, scholarship amounts have increased and because the program has been flat funded. The number of scholarships have been forced to decrease because the Department of Education is requiring the administrator uh, to add the inflation adjustments to the scholarship amounts. And they're interested in doing this because it will reduce the number of children in the program. And the result of this, uh, unfortunately, is uh, even students who have been in the program for a long time are are not going to get renewed uh, unless we can figure out a way to get this appropriation level raised.
0: Well, I think it's important as we celebrate educational victories or educational choice victories around the country to mm-hmm. recognize that this small program remains vulnerable. It also does not have uh very clear advocates in in Congress. Once upon a time, former Speaker John Boehner was a huge advocate. Long, long ago, uh and you'll remember this, uh, John. Uh, uh, Majority Leader Dick Armey was an advocate for for creating this program. So, in in the history of the program, they did have advocates in leadership positions. <clears throat> we definitely hope that congressional leaders will step up and express support for the program. Uh, before we talk a little bit more about the opponents and that the their powerful allies, that's the the unions. Um, what what can people do to express support for the program?
1: Well, I want to be clear. We continue to have supporters in the Congress, um, you know you know at one time as as you noted, we had guys like Dick Army and guys like john boehner uh, it 's always great when you when, when your program is the speaker 's like number one priority i mean that was really, really helpful in in, in those days but You know, we do have uh, folks like Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who's a very strong supporter of the program. Uh, Dr. Andy Harris, uh, another very strong supporter of the program who is on the House Appropriations Committee. You know, so we're grateful to folks like that who are going to fight for more funding. So that's that's just really, really important.
0: Well, and I've noticed over the years that Dr. Virginia Fox, who's uh, chair, chairman of the House Education and the Workforce Committee, is always supportive of uh, school choice, yeah, absolutely. always ready to speak to to school choice recipients when we do bring them to the uh,
1: absolutely. she She is a great champion. And not only that, Dr. Fox also serves on the Oversight Committee, which has jurisdiction over the Opportunity Scholarship Program. So we're grateful for her support as well.
0: All right. Well, we definitely want to be keeping an eye on what happens with the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. That is a program that's been around for a long time, but we have to continue to advocate for it to ensure that low income families in the District of Columbia have those options that they so, so need and deserve. Let's talk about the opponents of educational choice and really the opponents of all things good in K-12 education, and that's the the teachers unions. With the American Federation for Teachers and the National Education Association meeting this summer, we've been talking about teachers unions here on Students Over Systems recently. Uh, We feel very strongly that it's important to spread the word that uh, teachers unions and what's best for teachers and students are very different things. And you appeared on a PragerU short documentary called The Biggest Bully in School, Why Public Education is Failing in America. Really, that should have been the biggest bully, bully in school, why teachers unions are awful. <laughs> and uh, you articulated that, uh, that idea uh, very clearly when you said it's about money and power. They have nothing to do with advancing education. Um, So tell us a little bit about what that documentary um, was and and what the objectives were there.
1: Yeah, that was a terrific product from from PragerU. And, um, you know, they talked to some folks around the country uh, who had firsthand experience with the teachers unions really doing their level best to keep schools closed Uh, during and even after the pandemic. And, you know, I'm reminded, I I live in Fairfax County, uh, you know, which, you know, Fairfax and Loudoun were sort of ground zero for uh, folks rebelling against local school boards uh, who were not listening to parents and who were determined to keep schools closed. And I remember at one point during the pandemic, the local teachers union in Fairfax actually said that they, uh, that their teachers would not go back into the classroom Not only until all of the teachers were vaccinated, but until all the students were vaccinated. Now, mind you, this was before vaccines were made available for students. Okay, Uh, that's just how severe their position was, you know, and to listen coming out of the pandemic to Randy Weingarten talk about how, you know, the teachers unions really wanted to get back into school. I mean, that's just farcical. I mean, how how uh, Randy can say that with a straight face after everything that the teachers unions did over the course of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, you know, to keep schools closed, uh, is it's just offensive. And, you know, you, you hate to be cynical about these things when it comes to teachers unions and why they do not support education freedom. Uh, but the reality is, sadly, it is about money. Um, You know, charter school teachers do not pay union dues. Private school teachers do not pay union dues. As a result, they are not contributing to the union's, uh, you know, acquisition and retention of political power. And, And that's why they oppose this. And it's it's just it's not good for kids. And the great news about this is I feel like, you know, with all the momentum that we've been experiencing around the country over the last couple of years, you, you, you just see it, you know, in state after state after state, you're seeing it at the federal level. Um, you're you're now finding more and more policymakers who have come to realize, you know, there might be something to this school choice thing, right? Because a lot of these folks, they're parents, and they went through this during the pandemic, and they know what the teachers union did to try to keep schools closed.
0: Right. And this wasn't a new phenomenon, right? Now we know that the teachers unions were working against Students were working against parents in a lot of cases working against educators when they were fighting to keep schools closed. But this goes back years as far as their efforts to uh, to not help children learn, to not improve outcomes and really to not even help uh, teachers improve their pay and benefits. Um, You mentioned in this PragerU video, which, again, is is called The Biggest Bully in School. uh, There's no question the union goes out of their way to protect bad teachers and that the process to fire a bad, a bad teacher is extremely laborious. Uh, talk to us about what what that is that they're doing to protect bad teachers.
1: Yeah, I, I, the the process that you have to go through in order to get rid of bad teachers is just quite stunning. And I, I first learned about this when... Uh, I was working for the Arizona Department of Education in the late nineties um, and you know they, they part of the school board meeting uh, usually the end of the school board meeting was about uh, you know taking up the issue of disciplinary action for teachers and you know, just to watch how long it took to remove bad teachers from the classroom was, was really, you know, I, it was, it was very illuminating for me back then. And, you know, frankly, I don't know that much has really changed on that front. Um, you know, it's really, you know, it's really stunning. I mean, you've heard stories out of New York where they put the teachers in these white rooms where they continue to get paid, you know, all their money, you know, when they've been, uh, when the evidence has piled up that they've done some really horrible things. It's, it's not good. And and I, you know, I am reminded uh, you know, of a video clip I saw years ago uh of a guy named Bob Shannon, who was the legal counsel for the Natural Education Association. And it was his, you know, he was retiring and he so he gave this speech to the NEA convention where he accidentally well, maybe he did it purposely, where he just blurted out the truth. He's like, look we're not in business for kids. We're in business, you know, for the adults. We're in business to have and accumulate power so we can do what we want. It doesn't have anything to do with kids. I mean, and there's really nothing more frightening than this. right? And, you know, and the thing that I was taught very early on in my career uh, in education, which now goes back, as I said, to the, to the 90s, uh, was my old boss and my old friend, Lisa Graham Keegan, who, who always said to us, look, You always need to be careful about differentiating between teacher union leaders and teachers because we love teachers Mm -hmm. and teachers are underappreciated and underpaid. There's a lot of incredible teachers around America, public school teachers, charter school teachers, private school teachers, homeschool teachers, magnet school teachers. Teachers are amazing. But the teachers union leadership really is in in business for one reason. It is to collect union dues and it is to spend that money uh, and to leverage political power. That's what they're about. They're not about helping kids succeed.
0: Right. NEA and its affiliates are effective advocates because we have power. That was that, that union quote that uh, you just mentioned that was also featured in this, in this documentary. Um, and you also mentioned in, in the documentary that, uh, that as they're amassing this power, they've become very political over the last 20 or, or so years. And therefore they're not representing their members because like many of these classroom teachers who we love don't have these really extreme views or this extreme like desire for great political power. So the unions increasingly are, are very different um, and distinct from the individual classroom teacher. And we definitely want to make sure that that, that point is, is clear. We love teachers. That's right. These, these unions are political machines And we don't love them. (laughs) They're hurting teachers, they're hurting parents, and most importantly, they're hurting students, and that that has to stop. I mean,
1: this is a little bit like uh, the the degree to which the teachers' union leadership is out of touch with rank-and-file teachers is very similar to the way that the Democratic Party in America is out of touch with their core constituencies. If you look at the support for school choice among parents, Latinos, African-Americans, um you know the support is is just overwhelming and we're at the point now where the only constituent the only core constituencies in the democratic party that still oppose school choice are wealthy white liberals and and teachers unions that's it because the, the support is so overwhelming among all of their other core constituencies they're simply out of touch with their core constituencies
0: well, thankfully, thankfully, we have made great progress on the school choice front. And some of that a lot of that's due to your leadership at the American Federation for Children for many years. Uh, you're working on another school choice front right now. And that's uh, federal school choice. And just one more plug and mention of the of the the biggest bully in school, the PragerU documentary that everyone should should listen to you talk about the fact that there is hope, when we talk about school choice, that this is unquestionably the most important reform. Um, And the more that we can empower parents to choose best educational environment for their child, that's gonna shake up the system. With money following the children, we take away the power And the union dues from the union. And there's all kinds of other benefits as well. So let's talk about what you're exploring at the federal level right now. As we mentioned at the start, you've been really the godfather of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, shepherding that program through Congress for 18 years now. Uh, you've been also engaged in another endeavor at the federal level, and that's what's uh, now being called the Educational Choice for Children Act. What is this?
1: So, the Educational Choice for Children Act uh, is um, is a federal scholarship tax credit, um, and this is we refer to this as the post pandemic version of what Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos introduced back in, in 2019. And basically, this is an opportunity, Uh, and and I want to be very specific about this, because the moment anybody utters the word federal, uh, there are a number of people around the country that immediately go into a fetal position and think, ah, it's a federal program. (laughs) It is not a federal program. It is a federal Mm -hmm. opportunity that is going to be funded by Individual and corporate contributions to nonprofit scholarship-granting organizations around the country, uh, up to ten billion dollars. Donors can can, individual donors can contribute up to ten percent of their adjusted gross income, or five thousand dollars, whichever is higher. Corporations can contribute up to five percent of taxable income, Um, and the money is going to go to scholarship-granting organizations, who would then hand out scholarships. Uh, that students can use on a variety of educational purposes, including private school tuition, uh, tutoring, which would help address the catastrophic learning loss that is taking place around the country, uh, special needs services, education technology, fees, um, homeschool families would be able to benefit from this, uh, and the individual and corporate donors who contribute would get a 100% non-refundable federal tax credit. Um, There's very broad eligibility requirements for this. The eligibility is based on 300% of median income by area around the country. Uh, So what does that mean? What it means is is that around 85% of the K-12 population in every state would be eligible to participate in this. So it would be just a remarkable achievement at the federal level. We believe that it will help parents of up to 2 million kids around the country choose a school or education service of their choice. And you talk about money following kids. You talk about trying to dilute the power and influence of the teachers unions. If you can empower parents of another 2 million students around the country with educational freedom and choice, you are diluting and diminishing the power of the teachers unions.
0: Okay, John, let's talk a little bit about your statement that this is not a program. This is a tax credit. This is an opportunity, not a program. Um, Why is it not a program? If it's something that has to be administered at the federal level, how is that not a federal program?
1: So it is not a federal program because it's a tax bill. So there is no middleman. The relationship is between the donors, the SGOs and the Treasury Department. There's nobody in between. The words United States Department of Education do not appear anywhere in this bill. Nowhere. Uh, this is a bill that respects federalism. It protects religious liberty. It protects. It ensures private school autonomy. And before this bill was even introduced, we sat down with all of the major faith-based groups around the country, uh, and we asked them to take a look at it. And you know, we asked them, you know, does this bill, you know, truly protect religious liberty? Does it truly ensure private school autonomy? And I can assure you, they would not have signed. They would. They would not have signed on unless they were assured of that. In addition to that, we had the Institute for Justice take a look at it, uh, and they blessed it from a constitutional standpoint. Uh, so th- these are all good things. And, you know, I mean, if you're trying to find the, the way that you can facilitate educational freedom and opportunity around the country without the great hand of the federal government coming in, this is the way to do it, um, because you, you are directly empowering parents. And for all of my friends on the conservative and libertarian side of the aisle who believe that you know what we really need to do is liberate all the money. Well, I'm with you. We do need to liberate all the money, and and, and the way to get there is you start with this because if you can, if you can get this done, if you can get this tax credit passed, uh, ten billion dollar federal tax credit, and you're going to empower the parents of another two million students. You're creating another constituency, a bigger and broader and bigger constituency uh, that can come into play when we're trying to do the bigger reforms down the road when the landscape is right. Because I'm telling you, uh, you got to have a coalition, and we've got a very large coalition supporting this. Uh, we've got national, we twenty-four national groups. We've got forty-five, uh, you know, groups from 20, 24 states around the country. Uh, we we have united pretty much all of the school choice movement behind this legislation with a few with a few minor exceptions. Uh, you know, everybody is for this. And uh, and I tell you, the, the, you know, for me, having been working the school choice ish- issue in Congress for 20 years, <clears throat> you know, to see the difference in the minds of policymakers, particularly rural policymakers. I mean, as you know, Jenny, you know, rural Republicans have never been great fans of school choice over the years for a variety of reasons. And, you know, to, to, to be out there and talking to these policymakers about what this bill could potentially mean, uh, you know, to urban, rural and suburban families all across America, you know, the light bulb has gone off and, you know, folks are starting to get this because they understand how important it is to directly empower parents.
0: Okay, so in addition to those various organizations that you mentioned, I believe you have over 100 House members who are co-sponsors of of the legislation, which is we
1: now we now have uh, we're we're we have 112 co-sponsors in the House, which is a majority of the Republican caucus. We have uh, 27 co-sponsors in the Senate. Uh, which is a majority of the Republican caucus in the Senate. So we're making very good progress in building support. This bill now has more support than any other federal school choice bill ever in Congress. So we're real happy about that.
0: All right. Well, are any of these members or any of the members that aren't signing on expressing concerns about the Department of Treasury and any regulations that they might put on the the tax credit
1: no, the bill is you know, the bill is pretty explicit, um, you know, by design, because we want to make sure that there's not going to be any sort of, you know, uh, you know, federal overreach here. Um, I think, what you know, when when we talk about um, when we talk with members and we, we get some credits, uh, credits, we get some questions about you know, what, what is this mechanism going to look like? And how can this possibly be done? Because, you know, this has never been done at the federal level before. And, you know, the answer to that is is pretty quick and simple. We have 22 states that have state tax credit scholarship programs. So there's a pretty clear record of how to go about doing this. Uh, states have been doing this successfully since 1998. Uh, I happened to be in Arizona uh, when, the, when the original uh, ta- individual tax credit scholarship program was being litigated. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, the guy for the union arguing against it was Bob Shannon <laughs> before he retired. Uh, you know, so, I, you know, I've been doing this for for a long time and states have clearly made this work. And, you know, our tax policy experts believe that the IRS has the existing infrastructure to do this. Uh, they, had the, they had the existing infrastructure to do this before Congress decided to add another 80,000 agents. Um, it, is, it is an easy thing to do. And again, there's a track record of doing this successfully across the country.
0: All right. One final question on the, on the tax credit and uh, something I heard recently from a, a state-level group. Uh, what kind of impact will this have on the existing state-level scholarship granting organizations?
1: Uh, None whatsoever. I mean, the federal scholarship can be stacked on top of an existing state offering. So if you are a state that has an existing tax credit scholarship or an existing ESA program or an existing voucher program, uh, the federal scholarship can come on top of that. So so what does that mean? So in most states around the country, you typically don't have high scholarship amounts. So if a family gets a state scholarship, maybe it's going to get them you know, uh, most of the way there in terms of K-8 tuition. Um, but it's not going to get you all the way there for high school tuition, which is more expensive than K-8. So this is, this is, the, this is an area where the federal scholarship coming on top of that is going to help those families who want their child to continue into private school through high school. So that'll be very, very helpful. In most states, um, you know, in the states that have now passed universal uh, choice programs, um, you know, the federal scholarship will be helpful in that way because it's going to boost it, you know, help for the tuition I- into high school. But for all of the other states, um, it, you know, it, it, it come because it comes in over the top. What it's doing is it's increasing the purchasing power for families and it's going to add a lot more students. And for the 19 states that don't have any sort of private school choice offerings, uh, and By the way, that's about 46 percent of the K-12 population in America that does not currently have a a private school choice offering. You know, most of those are in, you know, blue states with entrenched political opposition who will never get this, you know, if not for this federal opportunity. So it's just a tremendous opportunity. And, um, you know, we're hopeful that we can get this over the finish line.
0: Well, I am the mother of a child in K-8 private school and a child in high school, private high school. And I can say that the high school is probably about two and a half times as much as the K-8 when it comes to tuition. So uh, what you explained just now makes a lot of sense to me. All right. Our last question, we always ask our guests to tackle the school choice myth that bothers you the most.
1: (laughs) There are so many. But probably the biggest one is, and this is this has long been a frustration of mine, it's very easy for the other side to say, vouchers drain money from public schools. I mean, this has been the refrain for 30 years, for as long as I can remember. And it is such a myth because, you know, children are the ones who generate funding. Okay, and the idea that 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 these programs drain money from 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 private schools is is just utterly ridiculous, and you know it's it's a myth that has just bothered me and bothered me, and and part of the reason I'm frustrated by it is that I think that you know for too many years school choice advocates had difficulty coming up with you know, a phrase that was, you know, equally persuasive as vouchers drain money from public schools. And to some degree, we're still working on that. But I think, um, you know, uh, what what Secretary DeVos talked about when she was secretary, about this whole concept of education freedom. I mean, she relentlessly beat this drum. And I think that's kind of our, our best catchphrase now. I mean, Kate... Uh, Parents of school age children, they want education freedom. I mean, they want to be able to choose the best educational environment for their child. Uh, that, That just seems like a basic right. And I think that we're slowly... I think we're slowly turning the page on this money, you know, vouchers drain money from public schools kind of nonsense. Um, And we just have to keep at it. And I think that this incredible momentum that we are experiencing around the country, uh, this is a result of of the great work of the American Federation for Children uh, and all of uh, all of their state and national allies across the country who have been doing this work relentlessly for so many years. It is finally paying dividends Um, the pandemic was so horrible on so many levels, but the silver lining for education freedom is that it really opened, opened the eyes of a lot of policymakers, which were heretofore very skeptical about school choice. And that attitude has, has also made its way to Capitol Hill. Now, states always go first. Congress always lags behind. Uh, but I feel pretty good about where the educational choice for children act is. And I feel pretty good that we're going to get this over the finish line.
0: Well, John, I am so grateful for all that you've done over many years to advocate for the students in DC who benefit from the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, for students across the country who benefit from the programs that you advocated for um, with uh, your years at AFC. Um, and I'm intrigued and interested to follow your your federal work here with the with the tax credit. I want to personally thank you for all the opportunities that you've given me to work in the school choice field. You've been a uh, a friend and an advocate for for mothers returning to the workforce after having children, and uh, in a time when that wasn't as normal, you gave me uh, the opportunity to, to work in a a flexible way um, when I had had young children. That that really matters to me. It matters to women at, at uh, Independent Women's Forum. We value that flexibility and the opportunity to balance our our work and home. So, um, thank you for all that you've done for me personally, mm-hmm. uh, for and for the school choice movement, and for talking with us here today.
1: Well, I don't want to say that I'm biased, but you, you are one of the finest people I know. And it has just been my pleasure to have worked with you for so many years in a professional capacity and to call you my friend.
0: Thanks, John. All right. We hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, uh, please tune in uh, up to our episodes every other week and uh, share this episode with your friends. We hope that you'll also uh, leave a, a rating. And um, if we finding out more information about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org slash EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education education, freedom, and brighter futures.